The history of the Trojan War, assiduously studied and thoroughly documented today, was passed down through the centuries not by academic text, but by oral tradition. The conduit for communication, rather than scholarly prose, was the campfire poetry best told in the Iliad by Homer, author of the other great Greek epic, The Odyssey. How much of the details of the story were true, such as the role of the gods versus artistic embellishment, are of less import, but rather how the stories and myths of such great events incorporating the essentials of love, lust, power, and corruption proved equally a reflection as much as an influence on the foundations of culture in the ancient Greek world and by extension the greater West. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time dealing. The only result Welcome back to the myth of the 20th century. We are in uh, the year of our Lord, 2022. This is the uh, first official show of uh, the year. Uh, the year in review, we generally don't count as the first show of the year. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a look back at a different point in time. Uh, now we're looking forward. Actually, today we are looking back at a different point in time. Uh, Time well, roughly three thousand years ago. Looking back, and we're looking forward too. Yes, yes, we are. Uh, Let's well, we is new again here at the Myth of the Twentieth Century podcast. We are encompassing the uh, the full chronological scope here tonight. Uh, now, what we're going to discuss tonight is a topic that we've bounced around uh, talking about for for years. Um, we had an aversion, I think, to doing it at first because we never really wanted to uh, stray too far outside of uh, specifically the 20th century history. And uh, we dipped our toes in the water here and there, and people seemed to really enjoy that. And so we've uh, branched out and decided to do more of this. Uh, so tonight we are discussing uh, arguably the most important work, or one of the most important works, uh, in the last 3,500 years, uh, and that would be the Iliad by Homer, a uh, light Greek epic poem, uh, probably written some point in uh, around 750 to 700 BC. Some scholars put it a little earlier, a little bit later, but generally around there, right at the end of what's known as the the Greek dark ages and the beginnings of of uh, classical greece that we appreciate today uh, a poem that uh, went on to define western fiction western thought 
the philosophy of uh, multiple civilizations, the ideas of many uh, people around the world uh, for time immemorial, and will probably uh, far outlast any cultural uh, propagations from our current day by an eternity. Uh, it's really impossible to stress just how important the Iliad truly is to everything. Uh, you probably don't even realize the impact that the Iliad has had on your day-to-day -day life. Uh, probably the underpinning of uh, most of our fiction in particular. But to many people, in the time it was written, uh, this is not a work of fiction. I mean, we deal with history here. Uh, generally, we deal with real history. Uh, many people, in fact, most of the people, the ancient world, uh, the Hellenic world, the Greeks, believed that the events of the Iliad were quite real. Not only quite real, uh, but that the Iliad itself was a dramatization, perhaps, of real events. Uh, you could not, you could maybe dispute some of the dramatic elements of the Iliad, but you could not dispute that. This, these were real events, um, that this was more of a, uh, if anything, a critical analysis of real events or uh, a Shakespearean play based on real events. Uh, the Greeks took these events to be gospel. Uh, everything about them was not only real, they were fundamental and fundamentally important. Uh, nobody could really truly be Greek without believing in the events of the Iliad, because the events of the Iliad, uh, the events that take place in, in the world of Homer, uh, defined what it meant to be Greek. They were the heart of the Greek character. Uh, and they Many of the archetypes of the Greek people appear in the Iliad, the pirate, the metal worker, the king, the soldier, the priest, the believer, the non-believer, these are all the elements of what it meant to be Greek. The horse for, tamer. For, for 1,500 years, for longer, this is what it meant to be Greek, all the way back to uh, the beginnings of the Bronze Age and the early invasions of Greece and the, the origins of the Mycenae. Uh, the, the Iliad speaks to all of that. And f more than that, it speaks to not only who the Greeks were, but the Greeks had such a complex sense of self that they could actually analyze themselves separately in sort of a third-person worldview. They could take the God's eye worldview of themselves and uh, look at what they believed to be real events with a historiographical lens. So you see the beginnings of Western culture here and that we not only uh, jot down history, we make sure that we understand our history, we build monuments and shrines to our history, but we analyze it. We look for our faults. We look for our better traits. We look for our heroes, our villains, what we did wrong, what we did right. That's all in the Iliad. And the entire culture of even emphasizing all of that begins with the Iliad. Fiction as you know it today, uh, historiography as you know it today, uh, would not be anywhere close to what it is in our world without the Iliad. The Iliad inspired 
Herodotus. It inspired Plato. It inspired all the Greek philosophers, all their historians, all their naturalists, the early physicists. It inspired everyone in the near Greek periphery, Macedonians, even the Persians, the Anatolian Greeks, peoples of the Black Sea. It inspired the Romans. It inspired their descendants. This single work and everything that it brought with it, all of the uh, centuries of tradition and power and history, uh, really truly gave birth to everything we have now. I don't know what your guys' initial thoughts on the Iliad are, if you agree with me that it's uh, as important as I'm kind of laying out here. It very much is, but I think well, it's also I sort can of give a some context. I think we were going in the same direction, actually, Nick. It's it's sort of a, a contextual reflection on like concretization of attitudes in that time and place that kind of turned into this magnificent work of art. Like, there's actually not a better way for you to persist your culture than by creating stories that are told and retold and especially things that are passed down as cultural artifacts not as like here is a book that is your assigned reading for the semester but stories that were literally recited around a campfire for the enjoyment of others and as an effect propagated a certain world like a Weltanschung so I, I agree. It's it's tremendously important. It's not like it defined the ideas uh, that you find reflected in there, but as a mechanism for propagating those, it was successful to the extent that it essentially created Western civilization. Yeah. So uh, Hans mentioned that you know this. Is something that has maybe affected people's lives. And I know it certainly affected the lives of anyone who is ever psychologically or emotionally abused by a classics department in university. Uh, it's definitely affected their lives and they're probably traumatized even thinking about it. And that's one of the great sins of these people is what they've done to Aryan history. But to put it into the context of what we do, I mean, we're we're coming back to you. The last program that we recorded and put out was about the last year that we all uh, lived through, 2021, I think it was. And uh, yeah, we've we've been uh, missing. There's a you know, maybe some stories to that, but we are, we are back and happy to have you tuning into the program again, and happy to be back. But I think it's an appropriate topic to usher in the new year with because i think that when we talk about the importance of the iliad um and as we can understand it for hellenic life and even just just a, as a as a fragment of of what you know that that indo-european civilization was we can put it in the context that it's myth as per the title of this program that you are listening to that really informs us and historical actors. You know, it's not, 
we try to discuss the facts of history, but in many respects, they aren't what people remember. People don't remember facts. They're not interested in facts. They're interested in stories. And the Iliad is a story of ultra violence. And in that way, it's it super is cool violence. Going to remember <laughs> the best violence, you know, and it's something that's like, here was an event and here was the killing. And, you know, here are the people who lived through it. And you are the sons of these people. And we don't really have an analog in our time, despite being ourselves the sons of a generation that waged their own a fucking apocalyptic war on the European continent. I mean, there's plenty of analog to the Iliad and the events of the 20th century, which are themselves the subject of this program. Well, and there's so, kind of a human I think from that universe. Context, yeah, it's like... Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, it, it's so it's tempting to say, like, okay, it's it's like universal story of warfare, like the experience shared by all men in battle but it's not like it's extremely not uh it's extremely specific to a particular kind of warfare in a very distinct time and place and i think the way to interpret it is that the the particular context in which you operate is extremely specific like, we no longer fight duels as a way of settling battles or wars or anything. That's just not a thing anymore. But the human reaction to those specific circumstances tells you something about the sort of universal human drives that exist. So in, like, the opening... Uh, the opening chapter where there's this kind of like intra camp, like bitchy, uh, uh, like fight of no consequence, except for the huge consequence over the slave girl, uh, uh, Bereseus. Am I pronouncing that right? <clears throat> I thought it was Briseus. Yeah. You know, I've, I've never been super this, good. This is the when Agamemnon pisses um, off Apollo. Yes. It's something where, okay, well, we don't take booty anymore. We don't take slaves really anymore. We take prisoners of war, but then they just, you know, go behind lines and you never see them again. And here you have, purely to make a point, a shitty military commander demanding somebody else's tributes to be paid to him, essentially credit for somebody else's work to be assigned to him, just to prove a point that he's like the big swinging dick of this military engagement and he's tying this whole shit together even though he's not the best soldier he's the etch and the uh, head greek in charge hgic and then the reaction of achilles like storming off in a huff and essentially being like all right well for the time being why don't you fight your shitty war without me like this is very soap operatic and it's completely inapplicable to the the form of warfare in almost any other time. But you can see that these are like universal human emotions, impulses, 
patterns that are applied in these uh, these moments of stress and contention between men, uh, and it happens to like take place against this background of warfare, which is sort of like independently enjoyable. So, like, I don't want to over-universalize the Iliad and say, like, well, every war is the Trojan War, because that's just not true. Uh, but I think that you can take uh, you can take that universal experience that's embedded in those circumstances and appreciate the extent to which it does apply to other circumstances. Well, one thing I would say is a universal... Not that I like this word, but uh, it, it's applicable widely. Lesson of the Iliad, or at least lesson of uh, the myth and its role in our history, is that usually whenever you have some great violent cataclysm that takes place, it's something that shapes the lives of people to come for many generations after. You know, it, it's like a, it's like a, it, it's a, it's a center, you know, that it, things emanate outwards from there. And it was a defining moment in, in that, in their civilization at that time. And we can ease, we don't have to look very far to find our analogs to that kind of cataclysm. I think like the poetical aspect of it is something that, I won't say that it gets in the way because I have the same kind of like schizophrenic attitude towards the the poetics of it. That I mean, before we were able to successfully start recording, I, I've never even attempted anything close to Greek because it is so obviously beyond my abilities or interests to try to understand the relationship between classical Greek and how that would possibly function as like an analog to English poetry, that it's just useless for me. And when you attempt to do that, um, I think it's like, it can be kind of a independently enjoyable work to appreciate the, the artistry in translation not even necessarily um, by comparison to the original because I'm unable to appreciate the original. And there's probably like literally about 500 people on the planet that can appreciate the original in the original. But you can appreciate the language of the translation as an independent work. But I think that that also kind of because of the the poetic language and the temptation to actually try to line that up on a stanza-by-stanza uh, stanza or verse-by-verse verse or even, like, the really literal, like, word-by-word word translations, that almost gets in the way of conveying some of the ideas or at least it applies uh, kind of an excess burden to it, which is why my... Honestly, my favorite translation isn't even really a translation. Um, I've shilled this on Twitter a bunch of times. The uh, the Warnerd Iliad does a very good um, kind of Hemingway-esque, uh, 
I don't know what to call it, a translation of ideas, a retelling kind of of the story, not in like a shitty Cliff's notes, like, and then he went to there and then he went to there, did this thing, remember this other thing. But it conveys like what's actually happening and the subtext of what's happening in like concise English language. Um, I hope I'm not like yeah, doing it Hank, a disservice. So Hank recommended by... this to me. Uh, I haven't uh, finished reading it, but I really, I really like it. And translation is a big subject. I mean, this whole thing is a big subject. We're not going to be exhaustive about the Iliad this evening, but I, I think to uh, what, what is his name? Uh, John Dolan, I think. Yeah, John Dolan. He does a, he does a really good job of, of capturing the spirit because, as Hank mentioned earlier, it's it was a story, and it was a story that was familiar to Greeks, to your average Greek. You know, it wasn't something reserved for the overly literate. And it was some, it was a popular work in the sense it wasn't even really a work as we think of it today. It was a common myth. It was something that was told and retold orally by people to people who themselves didn't necessarily read. You know, that's it, why it was, it was something that had to be able to capture the popular imagination. And that's why you have these literal these literary devices of like the I forget what the technical term is for them, but the the like the wine dark sea, swift footed Achilles. It's literally a point when you are telling it physically in place around a campfire, you need a little bit of time to catch your breath and remember like the next bit. And having that uh, not like a digression, but that like stock phraseology gives you the breathing room when you are reciting a very long work. It gives you breathing room so that you can recollect the next part, keep track, keep your cadence, and then give the actual stinger. And there's so many jokes that are embedded in the Iliad, and they just, honestly, in the poetic readings, they don't always come through very well. But they're, I mean, my favorite one, you can tell it's also an oral tradition because, like, there are jokes that you can recognize are retold, like, three times. The best one, I think, uh, for the money, it's, like, a battle scene. It's, like, next up to the fight was XYZ, the son of a fortune teller. Arrow went right through his eye. He did not see that coming. Like, they had a very... Uh, kind of ironic and cruel sense of humor where uh, somebody getting their comeuppance uh, in like a very cruel way was like the height of comedy. And they're not exactly wrong. Like it's, I mean, it's kind of comedy. It's it's very good. But you kind of well, miss those Sam, things if you're like, ah, oh, yes, Beckett, sir. I, uh, if you're like, ah, oh, yes, our tragic, our tragic hero, the, the son of the fortune teller. It's like, no, it's a joke. Suffering. It's funny. And it's true. I mean, like, personally, I can say I've always, I've never liked the comedies very much, uh, you know, just out-and-out -out comedies. I mean, typically they're very Jewish. I mean, we're talking about, like, film in the 20th century. But I have always enjoyed black comedies. 
where you don't, because that's how life actually is. You know, life life doesn't have clearly delineated moments where it's like, okay, here's the funny part, here's the tragic part, and like, you know, here's the part where you fucking cry, right? It's, you know, laugh, you cry, whatever. Like, this is life, and it all blends together. And it's an appreciation for life that I think is reflected in it when you have that kind of, uh, you know, combination of, of humor and cruelty. It, it's something very real about that because that's, that's how like things actually are. So I've, I've been sort of waiting on the sidelines here withholding comment because I'm certainly not an expert on this topic. Um, I can offer my typical perspective on uh, this th- type of show that we occasionally do on ancient history, which I have very little direct knowledge of. I, I basically offer the sort of layman uh, review. And uh, I, I also listen to the war nerd uh, telling of the uh, Iliad. Uh, like Nick, I only got through part of it, but I was just going for the, like, okay, what what is the, the gist of this? I've I've sort of uh, osmotically absorbed much of the uh, the mythos, I suppose, throughout my life, uh, whether I was aware of it or not. And hearing a lot of these names and, and words and sort of uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, our discussion of G.K. Uh, not G.K. Chesterton, um, uh, the guy that that did um, the horror stuff. Um, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, Lovecraft. Uh, that, that's sorry. That, that was the one I was thinking of. Um, the uh, the lexicon and the the characters that we've sort of uh, used occasionally in this uh, dissident world um, come up, and sort of like that uh, in the Iliad, you know, Agamemnon and Apollo and all these people uh, make their appearance throughout our culture. Um, and uh, I, I noticed a few things that just stood out to me. And then I have some questions that I'll throw back at you guys. Um, it, it is obviously a description of a different time. Uh, a, a much more physical, much more local, uh, as opposed to global society. Although, you know, in their mind, you know, things were... Uh, obviously all relative because this pace of life and the the speed of travel were much slower. And so to go across the GNC meant uh, a, a true adventure and, and a true uh, long distance uh, adventure. And, and it, it was no small feat. Um, but compared to today where you can get on an airplane and go around the planet and you know, a little under a day or, uh, depending on your airplane, uh, it, it's different. Uh, but in terms of like the combat, for example, uh, the, the physicality of it is just something we just don't experience. Uh, you know, we sort of approximate it perhaps in our, uh, gladiatorial sports such as MMA. Uh, but obviously it, it doesn't get to the point where you're literally pushing a gladius through somebody's uh, body or in the case of the Greeks, uh, a spear. Uh, but just the descriptions of the violence of the combat was, was insane. And uh, just the, the crushing of bone and skull and blood everywhere. Um, it takes a, a, a certain 
certain man to to go into a, a situation like that and to not run away. Um, and perhaps that's part of why they told the story. It was perhaps to inspire uh, other other young men to be willing to fight uh, because it, it truly is a, a gruesome adventure. Uh, and that's maybe a question I have for you guys. Um, but as opposed to, you know, today where you're doing everything almost telescopically, I mean, you know, the drone warfare notwithstanding, you know, ever since the advent of the firearm, uh, the common infantrymen became something uh, that required really very little uh, indoctrination and training uh, compared to something like a knight where you're training since youth to do this very ritualized and very skilled form of combat. Uh, the use of a, of a gun, I mean, it's called the great equalizer for a reason. It's not hard. Uh, you basically point and shoot and uh, you don't have to actually put yourself necessarily at great risk. So the heroics and the bravery required uh, is it's just an order of magnitude greater when you're doing hand-to-hand combat. And I think the story does a good job portraying just how bloody and, and nasty that stuff was. Um, but going to the questions, um, the um, the impact that this uh, this work had, I, I I'm not disputing that. That's that's never really uh, in, in question in my mind here. My question is, why is it had such a big impact? It, was it really the the form of the writing, or was it the topic that the topic was interesting? Uh, and what, was it also a factor of the fact that very few people were literate, and there was just lack of competition in writing these stories? Because you know there were contemporaneously, I'm sure. Um, and I'm not an expert on this, but I do know that a lot of the Chinese uh, mythologies were, you know, being written um, around the same time. And, and perhaps I shouldn't say mythology. I mean, I should say maybe the histories and the sagas that they told about, you know, their 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 history were were written. I would say in a very um, artistically florid manner. Uh, many people have said that the way the Chinese history is told is somewhat ridiculous and how, you know, the emperor, you know, flew on a carpet and, you know, the, the sky opened up. And I mean, just all these like sort of very obviously uh, supernatural things that maybe, you know, were meant as kind of like literary devices and not necessarily meant to be literally interpreted uh and well, it the, sounds like they're the doing that chinese in, epic is a story about a young man who studies very hard gets very good grades and goes on to be the greatest of all bureaucrats <laughs> that's that's one no ever told a story where someone didn't get fucking murdered yeah i i think that's i think that's an unfair comparison to be honest i i, I think there's some also some very extravagant well, uh, stories from what I, I mean i'm not an expert in chinese literature but from what i gather the difference is the difference between greek and chinese civilization like if you talk about chinese civilization you're talking about a progression of royal courts and the histories that they had commissioned for political purposes versus like a pseudo oral tradition spread by sort of mass consensus through a society of free people. 
a very disjointed society, particularly uh, in the Mycenaean post-Dorian uh, era as well under the Greek Dark Ages that was, uh, we would describe it as a collection of, 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 of chieftains or fiefdoms. Um, you know, as many as maybe a thousand at one point, it's speculated that uh, uh, the Greek islands and the Greek uh, peninsula and, and all the way up into the into the mountains and the plains uh, was so uh, divided. These people were all very much similar. They were all considered themselves at one extent or another uh, Hellenic, but they would not have been uh, imposed upon with some sort of standard tale, some sort of drawn down tale. This is part of the explanation um, for the very rich cataloging and the colorful description of many of the Greek peoples that actually arrived to this conflict um, and their homelands and their ships what they prepare for their food, how they decorate their armor, how they converse I, with one another. I mean, Adam, I don't. I really don't want to pick on you because this yeah. is like a super common. Uh, uh, wait, did, did how much of that came through? Came through. You're coming through. Okay. Well, Adam, I really don't want to pick on you um, because I've heard this sort of meme like as a constant since I was like fucking five years old. But I am not actually convinced in the present year that hand-to-hand -hand combat, as the Greeks uh, practiced it, takes either more or less courage than like contemporary infantry combat. I think that they're just really uh, both pretty terrifying uh, and terrifying in different ways that are not super comparable. Um I, from like, so there's a, uh, there's a really good, uh, blog, uh, a coop, like, uh, a below, uh, in French, uh, dot fucking blog spot or something. Um, he, he sort of analyzes a lot of, uh, depictions of the psychological effects of ancient warfare and contemporary warfare. Um, I mean, he's, clearly like doing a bit and he has his position on sort of the psychological uh the psychological construction of warfare but i think that he has a point in as much as like it's not clear to me that it's any uh easier to do kind of like modern small unit uh infantry maneuvers where you're like okay, well, somebody's shooting at you from a long way away, but the bullets are right here, and your job is to get out from behind this thing and, like, run out to this other thing versus, like, 3,000 years ago, it's like, well, I've got my bro to my left, and I got my bro to my right, and we're all getting stabbed at pretty hard, but we're pretty sure we can, like, physically push these giant sticks to push their giant sticks out of the way and if we do that hard enough they will literally run away and the whole thing will be over by noon like it's it's not really clear which one of those is more like absolutely terrifying yeah. they're they're just kind of like different things yeah they are different and i i would uh i would agree that it's uh not necessarily greater than or less than on an absolute scale um personally i 
I would be more afraid of fighting a Goliath hand-to-hand than I would uh, facing him down with a gun. But um, that's me, and I'm, I'm I would agree also. I'm way more afraid of like, getting right misted in an artillery strike. <laughs> well, no, and that, that aspect is also sort of... Um, it, it's it's trauma-inducing in that you, you're constantly in a state of dread, but you can't see where your enemy is. That's also a different type of fear that I think is it's different. Um, however, in terms of motivation, in terms of ordering somebody the... to their death, I think it's still easier to order somebody to get on a firing line versus order some guy to go up against somebody who's twice his size, you know, with more armor. Well, and, I mean, you know. they have like a nice part in the Iliad where they're all talking about uh, when uh, the plague comes and how everybody's like slinking around uh, thinking that like, well, maybe if I stay in my tent, uh, then the plague won't come for me. And it's this sort of invisible assassin that's striking down like, well, first the camp animals die and then the dogs die and then the horses die and then the slaves die and then the fighters die. Then the nobles die. And it's just like this slow creep of death, which is like, generally speaking, you know, the. Yeah. The lack of plague deaths in any war that uh, we can expect to be involved in is pretty uh, ahistorical, uh, you know, historically speaking. Right. Yeah, I would say that the one, I mean, there's a lot of things. I also want to circle back to one of Adam's earlier questions, but there are a lot of things that I think the moderns are going to have trouble understanding. I mean... Uh, I think Nietzsche said, for example, that if, if you can't understand the fundamental cruelty at the heart of the Hellenic world, then you're just you're never going to understand it. Uh, there's different attitudes towards life, different value system than the the Christian West. I mean, that's that's one of the big things, and we can talk about that. But the one thing that is enduring, you know, three thousand years later, is that mortal men are still mortal men. That is to say that they're walking meat sacks that when they're split open and their entrails start falling out, uh, they're going to die. And that holds true. And that's, in fact, very relatable. So in many respects, it's the, the violence that's the most relatable thing. The attitudes about the violence are maybe a little bit uh, different to moderns. But the violence itself is very relatable. And I, I agree with Hank that there's, I don't think that a lot comes from making sort of uh, moral judgments about the technological nature of warfare. But I also want to answer Adam's question as to why I think that this is fascinating. And it's fascinated people and fascinates me because it's one of the windows that we have into the ancient world. And it's a very, well, it's a very clear window as far as that goes. I think that's what's compelled people to understand it because we can see parts of ourselves in it easily. I mean, there's a lot of the same blood that still flows in the modern European as to the ancient ones. I I agree, and I, I was going to make a, a similar point. Um, one of the chief elements of the Iliad 
that probably separates it from, let's say, what you were describing as uh, Chinese history. Um, uh, there's a ridiculousness to it. The uh, emperor of, uh, you know, rice-fed bureaucratic organization number 32 gets on a magic carpet, opens the skies, and, and does X, Y, Z. Um, it's retarded. It's boring. It's derived from uh, an insane civilization of, of weird people. The Iliad completely flips the script. The gods and the supernatural exist. They're taken as a fact. In fact, you're just supposed to sort of noddingly approve that's as that's being said. Oh yeah, it, right, the gods, yeah. But they're not major characters. The supernatural is not a fundamental element of the Iliad. It adds an air of mystery, perhaps um, a slight tinge of uh, of storytelling leeway. But the events are very real. They're very realistic. Uh, the violence is quite real. The mythology that takes place outside of the Iliad, uh, for those who don't know, by the way, the, uh, the Iliad is, uh, it takes place at a very short window of time in a 10-year conflict. Much of what we know about the tales of uh, the, home, the, uh, the heroic age of the Greeks, uh, as it's believed to be, uh, comes from other sources, other, other legends, uh, other, you know, various other uh, collections. That's how we know about the sort of uh, the wooden horse, the death of Achilles, the beginnings of the war, all this sort of stuff. But within the Iliad itself, within this short window of time, uh, the the humans are quite vulnerable. They die. We know that takes place outside of uh, of the the legend of the Iliad. Achilles dies. The hero dies. He dies a horrible death. Um, he loses everything. He gains only glory. And he, he lived a good life and he did what was right, but he dies. Everybody dies. That's part of the humanization of it. And there's mortality. There's not much mortality in rice farmer bureaucrat language. There just isn't. They're not, a, they're not interested in analyzing the mortality. What's probably so an element that's appealing about the Iliad and why it was probably so popular is that it's actually able to look at power structures critically. Uh, you can actually say the king, the chieftain, is a bad guy. Agamemnon is a bad guy. He is dishonorable. He's a sleaze. He's not an accomplished well, warrior. Worse yet, he's a bad king. He, he, is, he is awful. This is something you will not see in this, you know, the state-sanctioned epics of the East. Uh, you can actually understand the nature of power. This is something that speaks to the common man, especially to the common Greek, particularly in the city-state period, much later on, in the, the period of, uh, of Greek democracy, of Greek philosophy, and the, the period of antiquity. This would have been very, very popular. This notion that you can criticize power, you can speak truth to power. In fact, the whole concept of speak truth to power probably finds its origins in the Greeks, and this is part of what inspires it. This classic tale of the honorable, noble warrior who is of perhaps supernatural, mysterious stock, but is just a man, uh, 
challenges the leader of this vast conglomeration of, of chieftains, his empire, his empire of the Aegean, you know, this the king of Mycenae, Agamemnon. So that is probably what is maybe not most appealing, but it is certainly very appealing to the average person um, to understand and to admit, yeah, that we can have bad kings. We can have a bad chieftain. You know, multiple points, even just in the Iliad, you don't even have to factor in the outside mythology of Agamemnon. He just displays himself to be sort of uncaring, callous, uh, uncouth. He doesn't care about his men. Um, he doesn't care about his generals. He doesn't care about what's happening back in Mycenae. He doesn't care about what's happening in Greece. He leaves them to their death. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't care about anybody. Um, and this is displayed constantly. Now, you can argue, perhaps, uh, this is uh, this is done for effect. Some have argued that um, the, you know, the work that we have is the complete version of the Iliad, as it was recorded in the Library of Alexandria, written down uh, much later. The you know, This is complete, unlike Beowulf. This is what we believe to be complete. Elements of it, though, might have been slightly emphasized or embellished. We don't quite know. But what is very clear is that the Greeks believed, as a matter of fact, that there was a king of the Mycenae named Agamemnon. He was a terrible man. And the point of the Iliad is to analyze this specific window of time in a much longer conflict. that probably had its own tales. Uh, other periods had their own tales, um, their own analyses. The Greeks are probably obsessed with perhaps the third year of the war. Maybe there was a, there were tales about the origins of the war that maybe also spoke to the cruelty of Agamemnon, uh, the, the cruelty of Menelaus, uh, you know, the early bravery of Ajax and Achilles and and Diomedes, and you know so. I think that all of this speaks to something very important to the average you know, sort of free-thinking person, which is that we can have bad leaders. Uh, what's particularly, uh, I think, appealing as well is the description of everyday life, uh, and it's it's very glorified. Uh, food it plays an, an immense role in the Iliad. The the grilling of uh, and skewering of tasty, fatty red meat and pork and all kinds of fish uh, and wine. This alone, you know, the constant visual descriptions and the preparation and the the serving and the rituals that went with it and the the joyous events that would take place around these sort of rituals of eating grilled meat, that would speak to the average common Greek. The description of the ships, the cataloging of the ships would have spoken to the average Greek. The average Greek was a sailor. Greeks uh, were uh, a sea people. They were obsessed with the sea. It drove their whole life. Their whole civilization revolved around the ability to build boats quickly, to be able to, to sail the high seas, to sail the Mediterranean. Uh, this, was their, this was their existence. So the, all of these elements spoke to the common man, which is why it was so popular. I think there's a, the final element, too, is the, the traits that are emphasized as being heroic in the Iliad 
are twofold, physically heroic and intellectually or ethically heroic. You can be a physically intimidating monster, but if you do not have a sense of ethics about you, if you have all the violence, none of the intellect, none of the morality, none of the practicality, whatever you want to call it, you are not a heroic or good person. You're not a good man. This is very crucial, not just to the average person, probably why it was so popular, but much later on. So when you get into the what we kind of think of as the real origins of classical civilization in Greece, in the Roman Empire, elsewhere, um, people look at this as sort of aspirational to be both intellectually and morally significant and to be of physical prowess. If you can combine the two, you've, you know, you've achieved godhood. That's what Achilles is. Achilles is uh, a god in his lineage, but he's more importantly a god in how he acts both physically and mentally. So these are all the elements that make both, I, I, I think, caution, the Iliad – hold, hold on. They make the Iliad, uh, I think, what was appealing and why it became so important to the Greeks at the time it was told and then written down. And then later on, even today, um, what is the best advice that people give in this perhaps scene of ours? Get fit, read books. That's the whole point of the Iliad to an extent. Achilles is not just a, sort of a, a ubermensch figure. He is an actually good person who is in a terrible situation trying to do the right thing, who also happens to be of immense physical prowess and harnesses that for uh, a noble end, which is to fight on behalf of his people, who would be the Greeks. I, I would definitely caution, I agree with a lot of what you said, but I would caution against <laughs> putting a, virtue and ethics into this too much. Uh, I think Achilles in many respects is an archetype. I think Achilles and Odysseus both represent the two Aryan archetypes. Achilles, I, I think of Achilles almost as uh, like the blonde beast uh, as, a, as a violent psychopath. I mean, he is actually one of the more reasonable characters in the, at the beginning of the story. Uh, but when his Essentially, his brother is killed wearing his armor. I mean, he, he like goes insane, and he just goes he goes full uh, full psycho mode. And Odysseus, on the other hand, represents yes that other aspect of of cunning. And I mean, he achieves total victory by tricking these people with a gift. I mean, <laughs> no, I think by a lot of modern standards. Non-canon. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We can. We can. We can do that. We can it's do that. It's not even Achilles' idea yeah. to do that. Odysseus, we're talking about in that oh, case. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Odysseus. <laughs> Odysseus represents a uh, one of these archetypes. He is the. Uh, 
unlike Achilles, who is very sure of himself, very confident man, Achilles, I'm sorry, Odysseus is a, uh, a, a competent but extremely uncompetent man. He is not confident in himself. He's not confident in anything. That's particularly apparent in the Odyssey and in the Iliad. Uh, he is the Homeric uh, cinematic universe. Uh, Odysseus is the uh, one character who is not sure of anything right until the end. But he represents this sort of um, bumbling nomad type who goes on these wild adventures and has Sailor. no clue at the end of what was, what it was all for. Well, he yeah, like he was always like and he was always portrayed as somebody who was wasn't particularly impressive uh, until he started speaking, and then people listened to him because what he had to say was worth hearing. Because he was a brain boy, big brain boy, Word and sell. he had all the best ideas. <laughs> he was Achilles, a like, shape rotator. He's, yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we have to be contemporary with the discourse here. None of this will make any fucking sense in six months, but we're here for it now. One of the one of the elements of the the Iliad that I that I find fascinating is that um, it you can you can see uh, two things. Uh, you can perhaps see the evolution of the tale. And the names that are used uh, for some of the for the places, the people, the peoples involved uh, over time to reflect uh, as the centuries went on uh, the problems the Greeks were facing. And it would also uh, I think you can also see uh, when the Iliad is you know effectively put to paper, it's truly sort of written down, so to speak, and it's finalized, also reflects uh, the period. So for example, um, there's the mixing of the Mycenae and Sparta, which would not have existed technically around the same time. The Mycenae completely predate the Spartans hundred by hundreds of years. Um, there's allusions to Thracians as being allies of uh, Ilio or, or, uh, or the Trojans. Uh, Thracians as far as we know, did not exist in the in, you know in the, in the idea of what we think of what the Greeks thought of as Thrace in twelfth cent you know twelfth century BC yet. So it's either an allusion to the Greeks have always had a problem with uh, some strange group of uh, of cousins uh, you know near the up near the Black Sea, uh, and, and the Thracians uh, are just a stand-in for there's always been this problem or. It's to reflect uh, the Greek, you know, at the time, the Greeks were particularly fixated on dealing with the Thracian problem. And so why not include the Thracians into this tale? Oh, the Thracians, well, you know, the Thracians have always been a problem. In fact, if you think back to our great war with Ilium, they were allied with them. So that's why we are in this blood feud with them 700 years later. So you can see, like that, there's the mixing of the contempt, the world that was contemporary to Homer, and the, the world that was even ancient to them, certainly ancient to us, which was the Greek, you know, the uh, age before the Bronze Age collapse. This is part of the sort of uh, storytelling element that I think uh, reinforces the idea that 
uh, not only they, they believe that the events of the Iliad were real, but like Shakespeare would take real events or real people, add dramatic flair, invent some side characters here and there, invent some subplots to tell a, a more interesting story, uh, some some creative uh, license, if you will. That's what the Iliad might be. It is uh, both uh, uh, an analysis and a, a dramatization of real events. Uh, and not not in the sort of freshman sense where, oh, you know, it's just a myth meant to represent a war. Uh, I think that there probably was an, an Achilles. There probably was a, a figure who was uh, from what we now think of as Ithaca. There was probably a figure like Agamemnon who tried to unite all the chiefs together, yeah, which they dramatizes the Achaeans. I think that was probably all somewhat real. And this was passed down by the Greeks over and over. And they had, you know, at the time that they finally put it together, they had a little creative license. And that's how you wind yeah, up. I think Iliad. all these people were definitely real. Like if yeah. like you see this process going on in real time, if you look back just a mere uh, 300 years or so, and it's like, ah, the the honest George Washington and the the duel where Hamilton was struck down by the traitor Burr. Like you see these figures that increasingly you have less and less sort of uh concrete knowledge of about like this is like a literal thing. And you have more and more kind of like stories where they're passed into mythic figures uh, known like by appellation and uh, sort of like fit into mimetic categories rather than like, well, there was like this guy and he was this tall and he had brown hair and so on and so forth. Well, and the great heroes are the ones who carry everybody else into me into memory, into ancestral memory with them. I mean, no small Aryan child sitting around the campfire in the Mediterranean 2,500 years ago ever said, tell me more about Paris. No, they... Fuck that. They want to hear about well, Achilles. They want to hear no, about Hector. I mean, like, at a certain point, it's like, no, some of these people exist as jokes. I mean, it's like uh, Paris essentially as a, the entire thing can be seen as a gigantic warning of, like, do not think with your dick. Like, look at this ridiculous man and the horrible amount of death and destruction. Like, the the original story, the, the judgment of Paris is that, whatever, like, blah, 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 blah. Like, for some reason, they chose Paris, king of the Trojans, to, uh, or not even king of the Trojans, like, some idle heir to the king of the Trojans to pick, be like, who is the, the most attractive god between these three goddesses and it's like well you yeah, know he chose wrong by the he, way well it, it wasn't even like you chose wrong it was like can you tell you're in a greek myth 
That's that's like a uh, you must be this tall to pass type criteria. Like if you're in a Greek myth and you can tell you're in a Greek myth, you're going to survive the Greek myth. If you're in the Greek myth and you're like, I offer you prowess and warfare. I offer you infinite knowledge of the divine. I offer to make you really, really sexy. And it's like, if you don't realize that you're in a Greek myth and you choose like, yeah, really, really sexy. Then like, obviously things are going to go horribly for you. And not just for you, but it's like your entire extended family is going to die, bro. Like, don't you realize you're in a Greek myth? Like that's, that's sort of what happens here. Yeah, I, I'd actually also recommend to people. I don't know if you guys have ever read Robert Graves' renditions of Greek myth, but I, that's another one. That's, he he manages to make it. Uh, I don't want to modernize kind of a dirty word, but he he manages to make them very acceptable and alive. You know, something that you can really you can really see and relate to as living living gods. But the correct answer uh, was, of course, Athena. Like you should have just, you should have known that going into it. But he didn't, so everyone has to die. And I think that the gods, like, there's a trend. I I know that in like the academies and stuff, there's like a cynical interpretation that, and you see this also in the approach to Rome too, where moderns academics are unable to take seriously the piety of the Greeks. And this is a problem. I think when you try to understand this stuff is like, no, these, this is real. Like these people are not bullshit people. They actually live in this world. And well, and this like Greek know, mythology makes so fucking much more sense. If you just translate the goddamn names like it actually means something to say that like the sons of war are like fear and plague and the other guy like that's a metaphysical statement that you can like make and means something it's not like oh yeah there's this cute pantheon and they're all just sort of like randomly associated and living in this gigantic soap opera on top of this mountain. And every so often, like they come down and somebody dies. Like that is such a shitty reading of it. When like just translate the names and you can be like, yes, like war stalks the plane. And he really enjoys all of this fighting because it's war like he is war and he enjoys the fighting and nothing so much as a good plague and the terror that comes with that. Like then you like ironically do not personify this God into like, yes, this is a character in my, you know, transferred Marvel brain like it's it's not it's not meant to be like yes this is a character no this is war it's this serious thing this is like fuck how do you translate Aphrodite like this is 
like cunning cunning warfare like uh how how would you translate uh athena like the other athena, ones are you mean yeah i, I do mean athena yeah i mean like it's pretty obvious how you translate aphrodite yes. it's like like paris chose lust Cosmic everybody pussy. dies now yeah paris chose pussy everybody dies now like that's an actual statement you know, it's, uh, it's, it's something where the mythology, if you take it seriously on its own merits, you start to understand why, like, Greek philosophy was compelling to people that were as smart as the Greeks. The same way that, like, Christianity embeds a sense a set of metaphysical ideas and like concretizes in this specific way like greek metaphysics was expressed by their mythology because the idea that like aries war is a metaphysical force that does stuff is something that is cognizable. It's a sensible idea. This reflects in their actual stories about how that plays out. So yeah, metaphysics is all fun and games until it's time to like have metaphysics done to you. Yeah, I think that this is another obstacle people have, especially with Christianity from the modern world and understanding this is that one thing, for example, that always stuck to me about the story and about also the Odyssey and other other myths is the extent to which like the affairs of mortals are so brief and the ones that matter are the ones that people are talking about, but they do in fact all end up in the same place. Uh, it's a very much a religious attitude towards the world as it actually exists. And the gods are the world continuing to go on and not, they're not, you know, you're not, a. it's not like some prelude to another eternity. Like the Greek concept of death is like, well, now you go like, you go chill in this kind of like cold and dank place forever, you know, good men, bad men, great men, insignificant men. And it was just that one moment that you had alive to define, you know, your name for eternity. And that's, that's what Achilles represents. I mean, Achilles himself knew he was going to die. He knew he was doomed. And this was his, his chance at glory, at glory, eternal glory. If he had one shot, one chance, one opportunity, would you grab it or let it slip? Eminem. See what I mean about the Iliad? Uh, Is that Eminem? All of everyday life. You don't even know that. (laughs) (laughs) Something I I wanted to to comment on, uh, going back to the, the... the descriptions of warfare. Uh, there's a there's an interesting mix of uh, of warfare described. I'm not the first to point this out, but uh, most absent 
from this uh, great heroic tale of the Greeks is naval warfare, arguably the specialty of the Greek people, uh, arguably their most favorite pastime, piracy, warfare on the high seas. Uh, this was truly where the Greeks excelled uh, beyond almost more than anyone. Uh, for a very long time, the Greeks were uh, uh, just gods of ocean warfare. This is just this is their specialty. I think, in particular, their uh, their civilization demanded it. You know, their their capability to be so at home on the sea and to have such uh, uh, control over large ships uh, and you know comfortability on the water. Uh, you kind of uh, you talk about sea legs. I think the the Greeks just probably fought better on the water than elsewhere. But there is a, a good description of your general Bronze Age warfare style. So you had a mix of, uh, of you know, sort of a couple-man duels or one-man duels, you know, two prominent people roll up on their, uh, their chariots and they throw down, and it's, uh, it's a blowout. You know, it's one hero uh, fighting against another, and everyone kind of gets in a circle and uh, someone goes down, and then everyone jumps in, and and kind of you know, this this would happen over and over and over again. Uh, but you also had uh, often uh, descriptions of mass warfare, right? Where uh, it's just large formations fighting each other. Uh, you know, order quickly unravels. You have attempts at. Uh, getting men back into formation, you know, actually uh, trying to improvise tactics and often fails. And then people's, you know, there's always descriptions of uh, men losing morale. And uh, what we kind of realize is that the heroism in the morale, it becomes or is regarded as the uh, most important element in the functioning of a battle in, in Homer's vision of the Trojan War. You see this with, of course, uh, I think the infamous moment where Patroclus dons the armor of Achilles. What's happening in that moment? Well, the Trojans and their allies um, have launched a series of skirmishes, raids, and finally a full-on attack. Uh, numerous Greek positions in the area you know, over the last few nights, and and then that day they, they completely uh, – and develop the Greek position by the shore, where the Greeks have their ships, their camps, their armaments, uh, you know, basically a parallel society they've constructed over the last uh, nine years in this this place. Uh, and their morale starts to fade. There's like very obvious descriptions of this. The Greeks give up hope. Um, uh, the gods have betrayed them. They have nothing left, and of course, the the central plot device of uh, of the story, which is this uh, bitter feud between Achilles and Agamemnon, uh, is at the is at the root of it all. And so, what 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 is it that turns the tide of battle? It's seeing Achilles. It's seeing the hero. He's back, and that um, they see Achilles, or they think is Achilles, uh, just deal out death left and right. And uh, suddenly, uh, as if through 
miracle. The Greeks turn the tide of the battle and they, you know, just totally decimate uh, the Trojan advance and they throw them back. And you see this kind of over and over and over again. It's heroism. You can, you know, no matter how good your tactics are, how good your weapons are, it becomes very apparent that the, the Trojans and the Greeks and the various factions that are in are actually fairly well matched. Uh, we can get into later who I think the Trojans were. I think to an extent, um, some of them were Greek or they were uh, maybe related to the Greeks, uh, but they're well matched. They're well matched in their armor, in their tactics. Um, you know, they're basically all the same size. They both have chariots. Uh, everything's the same. And, you know, there is there is no competitive advantage. It's just the heroism. It's are you feeling heroic yet? Are you feeling the energy? If you're not feeling the energy, you're going to lose. But if you feel heroic, you're going to win. So that's maybe one of the less realistic elements of the story. But in another way, perhaps not. Perhaps it speaks to something that is a little bit more eldritch, a little more eternal, which is that heroism and bravery is... uh, a universal good, and it's also useful in times of war. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think that. Well, I think one thing that comes. Go ahead, Hank. Myths that are useful in the context of a sort of universalized warfare uh, have a a very specific purpose because the Greeks were sort of. I mean, depending on what time period you're talking about, the the Greeks were like an unusually democratic, quote unquote, uh, like small d uh, fighting force. Um, particularly from what I understand of the history at the time that Homer was speaking, uh, partially by necessity because of how dirt poor the Greeks were for a lot of their history. Like, you need to be able to convey to your entire society what war is like, what is expected of you, and a sort of aspiration for what you should uh, strive for, or else you're you're just going to be wiped out. Uh, it's not something where it's like, well, kid, you're 18 now, time to go to boot camp. It's like, no, literally your entire society could be called on to go to war at any moment. And the cutoff uh, sure ain't 18. So I think that it's it probably like the initial spread of it, like it's difficult to like avoid conflating these things, but it's it. Clearly, it served a practical purpose as well as the aesthetic enjoyment. Like, we don't have a lot of, like, purely aesthetic... Like, all the comedies that we have from the Greeks are much, 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 or much older than that. And I guarantee you they're telling, like, epic dirty jokes around the campfire, like, right in between scenes from the Iliad. Because that's also, like, a legitimate human constant, is that... You got some jokes going on. Uh, you got long running jokes going on. So 
I don't know. That's that's my thoughts on it. That it probably it served a functional purpose in the context of like universal societal warfare. Yeah, I, I can tell you what purpose I think it did not serve. And by means of analogy, I think it's uh, interesting that most war myths that you see from moderns, modern westerners in particular. Always, almost invariably, move around the idea of the just war, and it's funny too because even renditions of ancient warfare that have come through myth to the modern time uh, have that imposed upon them. I, I think, for example, of that book um, "Gates of Fire," uh, Press Pressfield, I think his name was. Uh, that's about the Battle of Thermopylae. It's actually a good book, uh, but it's very much steeped in American moralistic conceptions of war. Whereas, you know, not to say American moralisticians of war are not deeply hypocritical uh, and full of lies, but there you have it. Whereas, I mean, what, what's going on in, in the Iliad? Basically, somebody gets cucked, and that's a perfectly good excuse to engage in a violence orgy you know it's it's time for rape and plunder it's, yeah that's and the best it's, excuse it's all in good fun yeah it's the best excuse <laughs> and that's what it's about i mean and so i can hear the people who did the best killing here are the people who distinguished themselves uh you know brought honor upon their line and here are the people who dishonored themselves and these are their stories it doesn't, you know, you don't need the moralistic excuse that is necessary. Like, it's not like the same violence orgies don't take place in the modern world. I mean, think, for example, of the war in Indochina, which I know has been compared, like some people have tried to draw a comparison as like sort of the American Iliad. Um, Everybody always tries to draw some like fucking dumb is. shit comparison. It's like that's yeah, that's I, like yeah, exactly. your job, bro, is to Precisely. make the comparison. Okay, we get my, it. My my favorite was the uh, the band of neocons, like uh, like uh, like Kagan, who tried to relay the Peloponnesian War to the war. In Iraq. Yeah, yeah, we're we're on the same wavelength, man. <laughs> oh, you see. Man. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I, I think yeah, so I, I, I swear, to, was it was it like Kagan the, or was like, it somebody else who was like leadership lessons of Agamemnon? It was one of the neocons. It was definitely one of them. Yeah. It, Jesus Christ. It, the only like, guy. Well, he kept the like, boys together, Twitter. just like George W. Bush. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow, that, there's like a there's a, some big meta irony there. Actually, that's really funny. I never yeah I never I'm saw kidding. that. That's that's good though. You know, the, yeah, there is like, uh, I'm not uh, the first to bring this up either. This is a total tangent, but um, the it was inevitably going to come up, by the way. Uh, the Brad Pitt film, Troy, which is actually, I'm, I'm going to go on the record as saying, not a bad movie. It's actually a good movie. Uh, but I will say. So it's not some, a bad movie, it's a bad adaptation. Yes, though. but something that is uh, particularly funny is the way that the Greeks are portrayed and the way that, like, the Trojans are portrayed. It's very, like, uh, mid-aughts, anti-W politic where the Trojans are portrayed as, like, 
swarthy, <laughs> like curly haired. And the Greeks are all portrayed as <laughs> like as Englishmen and Brad Pitt. It, it's 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 right up there with uh, the god awful Alexander movie from Oliver Stone, where it is straight up like about W. Like the whole movie is uh, is a. That's funny because I, I actually really like the Alexander movie. I, I think the Alexander movie is actually a better attempt at making something about the ancient world than Troy. I thought Troy was actually, you know, I'll give I'll give some props to. It, it was like mostly a white film, and it it you know it was okay. Uh, it was also, but it, there's a lot. I mean, we could talk a lot about the movie. One thing it got really wrong. I liked something I mentioned earlier, which is yeah, three hundred was okay. These are very like two uh, thousands <laughs> war war on terror context <laughs> big time, especially three hundred. But that to the movie, the gay version it really well. it took a very <laughs> Yeah, the, it kicked Dennis Rodman down the well. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> All right, Negro. The gods were very much absent that film. It was a very uh, which the thing about that is when you remove the gods and you remove an understanding of the you know the sort of uh, moral, if you will, framework of the ancient world. Uh, you, it really doesn't make any sense. Like the whole conflict doesn't make any sense. Yes. Like I forget who they had playing Helen, um, but it really, it was like this weird, like kind of romance concept where it was like, well, this is about love or something and like war, something, something. Like the, the whole picture of the, of the struggle doesn't make any sense when you remove the necessary oh, it's gonna be a great picture we got the uh, we got war we got love we got death uh what don't we have yeah you know this actually brings up something uh, that i wanted to mention earlier uh another element of the iliad that i think is probably why it was so important to the greeks is that it is about the greeks it's, it's about them it, it is it is a uh a cultural snapshot of who the greeks uh, were and are uh, their food, their music, their rituals, their games, their names, their places, what they did, what they felt, how they viewed the world. It's all in there. It is the full spectrum of a people's culture and life. I mean, you is, you you oh. walk away from the Iliad, you truly know you could go in know nothing about the Greeks, know nothing about any of the peoples of the Achaeans, not even know anything about the Trojans, nobody. And you could come out with a very crisp picture, uh, a very crisp understanding of who these people are, what they like, what they don't like, um, what they eat, how they how they view the world they're in, how they view their you, you get to know their gods. You get to know what they think will happen when they die. You get to know where they think they came from. I mean, it, it is a it is the full profile, uh, and very few uh, epic tales, uh, and very few, very very little of the even the great epic literature uh, or philosophical literature later on in in the Greeks from the Greeks uh, 
actually has a lot to say about the Greeks. One of the major problems of Greek philosophy, uh, and I'm not taking credit for having this take, uh, is that the, the, the Greeks ultimately sometimes fail to truly just look at themselves. What, what, what does it mean to be Greek? Is it sometimes are very often not the actual topic of what was being discussed. There's plenty of philosophy about being Greek in the Iliad, which is probably why it was so fundamental to people. You see this with many peoples who were not Greek, but in the Greek periphery uh, or associated with the Greeks that came to feel like the Iliad was their Bible. Alexander the Great is a fantastic example, a man who claimed to be descendant from Achilles himself, okay? Uh, whether this is LARPing doesn't matter. Uh, he, I'm he, from uh, North Macedonia. Right, right, he, uh, yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry, Macedonian uh, Macedonian <laughs> listeners, but yeah, we're, we're gonna LARPing, get, like, lynched. we, we got to rib you on the LARPing. Yeah, my house is going to get burned down for making that mistake. <laughs> uh, uh, but... Uh, you, so Alexander learned learned so much about who the Greeks are by you know reading the Iliad that he wants to be a Greek and he's confident in LARPing as a Greek. You can argue about whether the Macedonians were Greek or not. That's not my point. He saw himself as a Greek partially because of uh, how vivid the descriptions are and how vivid the the way of life is presented. Uh, very rarely do you get something that speaks to a people and speaks to universalism. It's almost it's it's very, very rare. One of the few other examples that you might find uh, from an ancient world might actually be uh, something like the Old Testament. Uh, many of the, the tales of the ancient Jews would be similar. The difference, well, there's many differences. The difference is that uh, the Greeks are themselves the focus rather than God. And that is, again, what I spoke to earlier, I think what is what was particularly important uh, to the common Greek. We're not dealing with massive topics here. We're not dealing with God. We're dealing with ourselves. Who are we? Yes, the gods are there. Like we, we all know that. Uh, but who are we? Well, I don't need to question who I am. I can just turn to the Iliad. I can you know, sit around the campfire next week, and you know that's when we do the, the retelling of the Iliad, and uh, I will know who I am. I'll be reaffirmed, and I, I know who I am because that's where I come from. And I should live that way, live the way that those men lived. Yeah, I, I think this is a a general theme amongst Aryan peoples is there's not a lot of, I think we are in general, a more externally focused people. I mean, if you look, for example, to the like asceticism that you see on the subcontinent, it's very different. I mean, their philosophy was very... I mean, this is post post Aryan India is what I'm referring to, but in the in the later uh, degeneration, but it is a very inward 
philosophy, like yoga and all these sorts of things. Whereas, well, what grew out of Hellenic philosophy, mathematics, and eventually on down the line to scientific methodology uh, and domination of the world, of the external world. And as for Alexander, I don't think Alexander, like Alexander was the horse warrior who slaughtered thousands of people. I mean, that's, that's as Aryan as it gets. Like, you don't really need, need much more. I mean, you can see an affirmation of this, like, in stories, you can see recognizable figures. And this brings me to a question I wanted to ask, which is something I was talking to a friend of mine about a little while back. But uh, I, I want to know what you guys think as to whether or not uh, Aryans are fundamentally uh, violent psychopaths. Because I I believe that more or less that's the case, and I have Every a lot of country uh, is well. Did, wait, wait yeah, was there uh, a second part of that question? Uh, not really. The, not the question. I was just giving my own answer that I have a lot of disdain for the this attitude that like, you know, the modern American Midwesterner personifies the Aryan. You know, this love like nice white people kind of thing. Uh, I, th I think that these are just people with deeply sublimated instincts. And it comes out in Americans, it comes out because every now and then America has to go on a, a violence orgy. You know, a lot of it is sort of compartmentalized and pushed off to the side. People don't want to look at the mangled corpses or whatever. But I think when you see something like the Iliad, you see without the filters on a pretty clear view into the, you know, become who we are, so to speak, right. As to the true Aryan psyche, it's like, yes, this is about slaughter and violence. And a lot of that is funny. Yeah. I mean, the latter part is the only really novel, uh, portion like claim it to identity is, Every people worthy of calling themselves a people is founded by and thinks it's pretty cool to be founded by particularly violent psychopaths. Like every country is formed in war, every people is formed in struggle. Like the most violent guy is the guy that you are going to call your George Washington or Alexander or Chairman Mao or whomever equivalent. Uh, and it's, it's really just a, a game of connect the dots uh, from then. I mean, to the extent that it's possible to talk about like the soul of a people, the idea that uh you, in some sense, like the the auto mythologizing of the enjoyment of it is also something that's. I wouldn't say that it's unique to like quote unquote the West. That's something that's. I don't even know if it's universal inside of the West, frankly. Uh, like the the ethos that I associate with that most is like various hill people that are, like, extremely proud of, like, a self-identity of being, like, universally violent. Um, like, you know, even even down to, like, you know, weirdos running around 
like the hills of Cambodia or whatever. Um, but I mean, that definitely seems to be part of like sort of Western meta conception, even down to the like, oh, like the nicest person until you draft him. And then, oh, pretty soon I got uh, I got yellow heads like coming out of the bushes. Uh, he just keeps mailing them back. I don't know what they're doing out there. Yeah, yeah right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody would ever and nobody at least should. I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone ever seriously reading the Iliad and walking away from it thinking that this was a story from a domesticated people. No, the 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 Greeks are portrayed in the Iliad as a a I want to say tough people. That doesn't really describe it. They they are they're portrayed um, perhaps as both calm and collected, but completely out of control. And out of control in the sense that they are truly the masters of their own destiny. Uh, these Greeks are in in the Iliad and in real life uh, around this time and after it were everywhere. I mean, it's hard to imagine just how widespread the Greeks were. The Greeks did as they pleased, uh, arguably. Uh, the tr the first successful um, great seafarers of the world, uh, one of the first groups of people potentially to uh, uh, routinely make trips outside of the Mediterranean, uh, both uh, towards Britain and and around uh, around the Iberian Peninsula, down to parts of West Africa, into the Black Sea, down the Nile. Uh, these people went and did whatever they pleased. They were they were calm and collected. They were thoughtful. They were not. Um, I wouldn't describe them as uh, violent psychopaths. They were willing to use violence, and violence was uh, was regarded with a certain level of uh, of trepidation, which is part of the point of the Iliad is uh, is to understand the nature of violence, not m maybe to question it, but to understand what it truly means to be well, violent. I I'm being hyperbolic. Using modern language, right? Uh, to be more accurate and specific, what I would say is that they were not just they, but I think it's a defining quality of Aryans, in particular, <coughs> is the capability of engaging in detached violence on a wide scale, where you can, you know, you you engage in the violence, and the one minute, next minute, you could be. Uh, laughing or doing whatever else because it's just another activity like brushing your teeth. I don't know if, if violence, of course, these days. I don't know if, yeah, but I don't think that the violence in uh, uh, portrayed in the Iliad uh, or other Aryan tales is, is ever really uh, portrayed as being detached. Uh, if anything, it's very attached. Uh, there's there's I, real there's there's real there's meaning. a narrative selection effect going on. Okay, there. but there, there's real one of the defining characteristics, not only of 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 Homer, 
You can find this in the Aeneid, you can find this in the Volsunga Sagas, you find this in Beowulf, you can find this in various collections of Roman mythology, Roman tales. Uh, you find this everywhere, okay? There is a real uh, understanding of violence. I mean, it's one of the consistent themes is that, you know, I, we have to do this. It might not always be uh, just or it might be cruel, and we must understand that aspect of ourselves. That's why all these cultures had a, a god of war, which was almost always portrayed with a certain level of animosity. There was attachment. I don't. I don't see any of this. Like well, uh, in the Greek pantheon, they're they're basically all gods of war. Sure, but <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. but Ares in particular, Ares within within the context of of the Iliad in particular has like multiple lines. Or you know, Ares is portrayed as uh, a, a self-deprecating uh, freak who you know who like is totally unconfident and unsure of himself. But is is portrayed as somewhat deranged, and he's portrayed as deranged in a bad way. The, 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 you don't see uh, a violent well, uh, psychopathy. He's portrayed being, as yeah. The the difference between like the essence of war as destruction versus like the idea of excellence in war, which is like a more Athenian. Or Athene and like with regard to the goddess right, Athena, victor, not the city of total. Athens. Uh, that's that's depicted as a much more uh, uh, positive slash you know wholesome chungus uh, uh, metaphysic going on. I mean, I I think that it's the level of detachment is there. I mean, a lot of the battle scenes, like that's where all the jokes happen. Like the whole. Like stabbed in the eye, he didn't see that coming, even though his mom told fortunes. Like that's that's a zinger. Like that's where all of the zingers happen. And the fact that there's there's this sort of like a uh, tragic aspect of it interlinked with that, I don't think uh, overrides that uh, that sort of casual or. Uh, uh, detached aspect of it, like the the idea that okay, well, within this cataclysm of war, which is this like basically this you know mad idiot god like wagging his dick uh, at us all um, as we slaughter each other for like his amusement, and like also look at that guy trying to put his guts back in. That's fucking rad and hilarious uh because like look at that gleaming armor over there but it's a shame that this guy that i actually had some respect for is ultimately going to put a spear in me it's like it's all of these things mixed together it's not like it's not just one thing they're trying to convey like the spectrum of experience there and part of it, I think, is like that that level of uh, detachment or, uh, you know, if you want to say like psychopathy, um, which like from a modern perspective, like I think is is fine and accurate. And ultimately, like it's only our fairly restricted uh, yep. experience of warfare that allows us to casually dismiss that as opposed to being like, yep. yep. But he's our psycho. Uh, precisely. 
that's uh, exactly what I would have to say about that. And I think that the gods put it in a good context too, because you know these mortals are all slaughtering each other, and the gods are like you know engaged in some kind of petty beef that is really the the, the instigating factor here. And after this slaughter is passed, like they'll be going on with their day. Like it's just it's just a minor thing that they take a passing interest in because I don't know what else is going on. Oh, which brings me actually to one point I wanted to make earlier. Uh, but you see a lot of um, system academics and, uh, you know, culture critic types who try to input uh, homosexualist assumptions into this, particularly with, with Achilles. You, I'm sure you got you guys have encountered this, right? And I, I think what's funny is no one makes the obvious point, which is that the true faggot of the story, the true homo, is actually Paris. Yep. Well, he behaves like a woman. He's a right. he's a he's a cowardly uh, uh, horn dog, which is the the Greeks would have regarded as the behavior of a woman to be cowardly and horny all the time. <laughs> so. Yeah. In the, in, yes. In the Greek canon, like women are the horny, basically animal beasts, always starting trouble, which is why I keep them back in the farm. Well, you know, uh, Paris is, uh, I think even outside of just the Iliad, uh, the the accompanying mythology that is probably somewhat incomplete towards the Trojan War, uh, what we do know is that Paris is universally uh, loathed as not only less than a man, but he's always loathed in stark contrast to his siblings to his family the greeks have a lot of reverence for well, yeah, hector is one of the great heroes of the story. O- yes not only for hector for priam uh but for ilium itself they they there's not like these boiling descriptions the story the, ends with the funeral of hector Yes, well, there's, but there's not these boiling descriptions of the city. Oh, it's a city of dogs and, and a city of scoundrels and losers. And, a, you know, you don't see that. It's, if there's any clear villain, it is uh, Paris. But he's loathed in contrast to everyone else in his life. The Greeks regard him as like, why couldn't you have just been like your family? Why do you have to be this way? Why do you have to stick out this way? Uh, something interesting is that Paris and and, and Agamemnon uh, are actually somewhat the same character. They fulfill the same role in that they both stand out as um, primary mechanisms for the whole story unfolding. And they're both portrayed as well, acting. Yeah, they're the ones getting everyone killed, and they don't yes, have very they're, good reasons. They're, they're acting outside of their role. Why aren't you what you should be? 
This is corruption of masculine energy. Yes, yes. You're either you're either a conniving, yeah. uh, unscrupulous. Yeah, totally. Why are you uh, a good king? And why yes. aren't you a good son? Yes. Why? 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 You're you're one is a conniving, unscrupulous thief, and the other is a conniving, unscrupulous thief. Uh, what does the what is the basis of of the actual contained story of the Iliad? It starts with theft, the theft of a girl from Achilles. And what is the 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 whole backstory of of uh, of the mythology of the Trojan War? The theft of a woman, even stealing. I, I gotta a say, you gotta love that part though, because Achilles is like pissed about a lot of things, but he's like, hey, I also kind of like that slave girl. <laughs> pretty cute though yeah i mean yeah, the, yeah right <laughs> the whole but you know the people that ultimately the villains aren't the, the gods or certainly not hector or the, the generals of avilium or troy uh they're not portrayed as the villains like the villains are clearly uh, the, the king and the prince on either side who created this whole conflict by acting like women. Maybe by, we're the real monsters. <laughs> yeah, by being gay. But yes. So to your point, Nicholas, uh, why do they infer all of this um, sort of like uh, homoerotic subtext into uh, into the story? First of all, it's to dis distract from any like real analysis. I think that um, when you opt for homoeroticism as your hot take for anything, uh, you're probably really missing the forest through the trees. And uh, it's a way to shut down any interesting conversation. And then you have a monopoly on uh, the discourse. So the discourse becomes homosexuality. Not a lot of people want to talk about that. So then you become the dominant voice. So that's probably where the academics really do it. Uh, but also because did, did you guys ever have a teacher who is even like remotely capable of te of teaching these stories? No. Uh, Closest closest I ever had was actually a Boy Scout camp, and it was literally around a uh, campfire. And one of the dads, um, who uh, was an engineer, um, but thoughtful guy, smart guy, um, he told the story of a Scheherazade, and that was the, really the only time I ever Ooh, heard like an ancient story told, uh, literally by a campfire. And, uh, yeah, he, he knew how to do it. That was, that was cool. But, you know, in, in school, like official public school, whatever, um, it wasn't even, did you get your ultra violence badge there, Adam? I got my merit badges. Uh, there was a uh, shooting archery, um, wilderness survival, um, somewhere in there, there's probably uh, some violence. What was that, Hank? Sleeve reading, horse taming. Well, now I don't. I, I I don't yeah. venture to imagine what God's name merit badges they got now. But uh, back when I was doing it, there were no uh, no girls. There were uh, 
there was only discussion of gay scoutmasters and uh <laughs> i uh i i can only imagine the level of uh masculinity has dropped since i was in there you'd probably get a merit badge if you uh fried up the lamb the way that they describe you marinate it in some nice wine and you skewer it and you have it over a nice pit it's like the whole thing you know every this is like the food. the pre-dinner fireside yeah. uh story it's like ah guys this lamb i'm telling you like the olden days is pretty good can't you just smell it right now I can. Well, okay, I can. now let's eat. So as we kind of come to the, uh, I guess towards the, the close here, uh, I think we we're all on the record as uh, as believing that uh, uh, the Trojan War definitely happened. I'm, I'm definitely on on that on that train. Uh, what do you guys think? You're are you confident what? as I am? I, I didn't war. know this was in dispute that the war occurred. I thought yeah, the dispute was more the of the telling Holocaust of the details. <laughs> no, seriously though. I mean, who who questions the the event? Uh, I, I thought it was yeah, just merely the details. Up, yeah. So I was I was going to uh, to, to talk about this. So um, there's there's been many Troys. Uh, so to speak, at uh, this one location. So, uh, yeah, that's fair. Yes, but there are. I, I choose to believe in the literal <laughs> yeah, historicity well, cities are like of this, the Trojan though. War, but of the Iliad. Yes. Uh, there actually was a dude. Yeah, no, of course. That's, Achilles. That's the he was position. super strong and good that's at stuff. That's the official fish of the 20th century podcast position. No, it happened literally uh, as is. As is written as is remembered um well i have i have a question for you then nick if if the telling as it was uh told is what you believe um where are the greek gods now oh well they're punishing us for our fucking influence that's why we live in a hell world adam Fair answer. So, uh, you asked Adam, is there any dispute? Uh, so, yes, there was for a long time. Uh, I mean, when was the last time you even offered a goat to the gods, Adam? <laughs> the, um, the, uh, as, as get back the Greek to you on that. world, as the Greek world, um, Declined as the classical world declined as interest in in this period in history fell away, uh, uh, and there was a, a new sort of historiography that was formed and new academic teachings on the on the preservation and exploration of history. Uh, there was a common sense uh, well into even the nineteenth century that. Um, that the Trojan War was a perhaps uh, accumulation of tales, uh, maybe describing cross Aegean conflict. It's a metaphor. Man. It's a metaphor for some skirmishes, and that um, 
you know, they would imply, oh, well, there was more than likely lots of war. We know there was lots of war across the Aegean uh, for thousands and thousands of years. It's been a common factor. Uh, it's just it's a it's a natural consequence of the geography. You're going to have groups of people on the, uh, the, the side of the Peloponnese and, and in one in Anatolia, and they're going to fight. It's natural. There was lot. There was always lots of cross-border pollination there across the Aegean pollination. It's where the whole concept of the EFs, the early European farmers, comes from. Uh, so this was the this was the sort of historiography that. The whole thing was a Greek telling of uh, of maybe some things that might have happened, and it was old campfire tales, and uh, it's not critically important, and that uh, that the whole thing was made up in the Greek Dark Ages to make people feel better. This was like the the belief for a long Semitic time. projection. Yes, that all changed. Um, and it's, that's continued to change. So what was one of the great achievements of the 19th century for Europeans? Uh, we really started to, uh, Europeans and Americans, uh, started to go around the world, you see, and at home and, uh, practice the, the new science of archeology, span uh, which was, uh, sort of a new art, let's say. And there were many, this is a time when uh, there were a lot less rules and a lot less uh, bureaucracy and uh, academic malaise around archaeology. And the, the tools and techniques were pretty low-tech, to be honest. You just had to have the money, and you had to have the manpower. So there was, uh, there was a man named uh, Heinrich Schliemann. He was a German man uh, of the 19th century. Uh, and Heinrich Schliemann was, uh, he was, uh, an industrialist, a German industrialist. He was a member of the business community. He lived a good life. He came from, uh, from, uh, decent means and, uh, he became fascinated with archeology span over the course of his life. And he became particularly interested in, um, in world travel. He traveled the world and, uh, and so forth. And he, uh, also had a fondness for ancient epics, one of which was the Iliad. And uh, he became fascinated with Greece. And now Greece in the 19th century was a, was a dump. Um, it bared very little resemblance to uh, the Greece of the Mycenae and definitely the Greece of classical antiquity. Uh, it's a backwater controlled by the sort of decaying Ottoman Empire, it, you know. So if you wanted to be an archeologist and go to Greece, all you had to do was pay some people off and you could dig stuff up. You could probably take a lot of it home with you if you really wanted. Uh, so you had this man, uh, Heinrich Schliemann, who uh, decided to go find Greek relics, Greek archeological relics, explore the Greek world. And uh, his life mission was to find the lost city of Troy. Uh, Troy had kind of fallen into legend even by the time of Homer. Nobody probably quite knew where Troy was supposed to have been, although many people had ideas. Uh, the, the current theories about who the Trojans were is, is complicated. Uh, for a long time, there was uh, the Hittite theory that the Trojans were Hittites um, based on uh, shared geography 
uh, Hittite recordings of a city called Walisa, Walisa, uh, that was probably Ilium, and that was the the basis of the legend. that perhaps uh, the Mycenaean Greeks and the Tro and the Hittites had fought many wars, which was natural. Uh, they shared a lot of uh, the Aegean Sea, and they were naturally going to fight each other. So there was a belief that they were. It was just Hittites. That the whole story was a retelling of the Mycenaean Hittite war. Um, that changed as the science evolved. There was a belief that uh, that the Trojans were actually likely. Um, themselves uh, either related to potentially uh, far-flung Minoans or uh, groups of people that used to inhabit uh, the Peloponnese that were overrun by the uh, the Indo-European invasions of um, of Greece and they had fled and this was uh, some kind of blood feud uh, one of the more workable theories is that it was a mix of people uh, inhabited that area um, could have been various Anatolians, Luvians is, a, is a, probably the the best. Uh, Proto Luvians were probably the best fit. Uh, we know that the city existed, and we know that there were people there, and we know that uh, they had conflicts with the Mycenaeans. So Schliemann goes to this area called Hiserlik. Um and uh, he gets permission to dig. Uh, and he just pours a ton of money into it. And what he finds is nothing short of remarkable. Um, uh, Schliemann, an amateur, finds evidence of nine buried cities, some of them on top of each other. And he completely unearths all of them. And within these cities are skeletons, treasure troves, uh, ornaments, clothing, preserved food, pottery, and entire multiple layers of culture dug up. Uh, And this becomes the sort of the basis for the modern understanding of two things. One, the, the, the study of the Trojan War and two, uh, Schliemann sort of single-handedly uh, reinvigorates interest in the Anatolian Bronze Age and Anatolian archaeology in of itself. Uh, so all the research that's been done over the last 140 years, 150 years, is due to this man who single-handedly uh, created this whole enterprise uh, due to him, we know we now know an immense amount about uh, Anatol- the history of Anatolia. It incentivized more archaeological expeditions, which unearthed Chalhoya, Gobekli Tepe. It unearthed evidence of the Phrygians. It unearthed uh, sort of uh, verifiable evidence of the Hittites, who were regarded as potentially just being a biblical myth. There was a belief for a while that the Hittites did not actually exist. It turns out they were very real, and uh, and Schliemann was responsible for all that. Uh, so the the archaeological and genetic evidence and the cultural evidence really speaks to their uh, and just sort of logical deduction that uh, the Trojan War was very likely a real war. Um, 
there were multiple cities that were unearthed. And one of these cities, uh, I think is often regarded as like, uh, Troy six or something to that effect. Um, and, uh, Troy six is the sixth layer. And this layer has these massive walls, uh, huge palaces and houses of the remains of huge palaces and houses. Um, lots of metal found around the area, lots of, uh, skeletons found in the area, uh, huge tracts of land, uh, and the archeological dating figured that, uh, the city had basically collapsed and started to be buried sometime around 1300 to 1250 BC, which lines up perfectly or almost perfectly with the purported time frame of, uh, when the Trojan War was supposed to have taken place towards the end of uh, the Bronze Age in the Aegean and before the Dorian invasion and the collapse of Greece or the collapse of the Mycenae. So the, the evidence is kind of overwhelming, uh, honestly. Uh, very, you know, there's bigger historical leaps made from less evidence. Uh, so the Trojan War is definitely real. There was a real war. Uh, and the Greeks, as wise as they were and as complex as their historical undertakings often were, uh, Herodotus was particularly skilled at uh, attaining knowledge that he really should not have been able to. Uh, that you know, over time and time again, people are often shocked to find with all of our uh, modern archaeological science that Herodotus was actually right about quite a bit that he was probably just speculating on or he had people tell, you know, explorers, so explorers tell him things. So if you infer from that, the Greeks being as wise as they were, the Greeks believed these events happened. They, they took it as a matter of fact. Uh, and I would take a lot of them at their word. You know, they, they were very often certain of very real things. Uh, so that's my conclusion, that the Trojan War happened. It was a bloody, glorious, uh, heroic event. Uh, and anyone who tells you otherwise uh, should be ignored and is lying. The event is probably the Herodotus. The uh, as I go, uh, war is the father of all and king of all. Some it has made gods, others men. Some it has made bond and others free. 